Hey guys, Alexa Curtis here, and you're listening to This Is Life Unfiltered, my weekly podcast on being fearless, living life unfiltered, and getting out of your comfort zone. I was very excited when I got a pitch a few weeks ago from somebody whose name I instantly recognized. I called my dad and was like, you're going to have literally the biggest idea of who I just got this email from, and I was kind of freaking out. So since it's episode 95 and we're so close to 100, I wanted to make sure that the next five episodes are really substantial, and I really want to thank you guys for sticking around on this podcast for so long, as well as following my journey. So you guys are probably familiar with Jackie Robinson. If you aren't, you are missing out on a ton of things. Even though I'm not very into sports, Jackie is a huge major league wise baseball player, and he's pretty much a worldwide phenomenon. He actually has a daughter who I'm speaking with today, Sharon Robinson. She's an incredible author, an educator, and a parent herself. So I recently received one of her books in the mail. It's called Child of the Dream, a memoir of 1963 that Sharon wrote. And I had a chance to read a few chapters before this interview, and it was phenomenal. Phenomenal. So Sharon's here with us today to talk about her childhood, her journey as an author, and what being fearless means to her. Sharon, thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, thank you, Alexa. Your show sounds, your podcast sounds amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, you are absolutely amazing. My first question for you, you've written multiple books so far, which is incredible. Some people want to write one book and can't even finish it. What advice do you have for people out there who want to write a book and have no clue where to start? Well, writer, as I say, writers write. So you start, you know, just need to start writing. So whether it's writing um, a daily journal, keeping a journal, um, or writing actual short stories, or writing your, or telling your story, you know, you just start writing. So when you come up with a concept, um, usually that happens in your head. And you work it through for a while before you start putting anything down on paper. So I guess the most important thing is to come up with a concept, something you feel very passionate about, something you know know well, and you start there. Let's talk about your childhood a bit because you come from an incredible family. Your father in particular absolutely changed the world and tackled so many issues, even when it came to racism and the color of your skin and so many other topics. So growing up, was there one thing that your father influenced you by or really any piece of advice that he gave you that has stuck with you until now? Well, the reason why I wanted to write Child of the Dream remember 1963 was because it happened in 1963. I was 13 that year and the civil rights movement was heating up. We had been integrating our schools and and our neighborhood in Stamford, Connecticut um, since we were five, although since I was five. Um, But now uh, with the civil rights movement and my dad's involvement in the movement, uh, 1963 took on a a whole new uh, tenor. Um, I got very invested in what was happening in Birmingham, Alabama with Dr. King. And then in May of that year, the children took to the streets and marched. And that changed the civil rights movement for me because it made me want to get more involved because I saw children out there in the forefront. And they were being jailed. They were being bowled over by uh, fire hoses and threatened by police dogs. But they kept on singing and and going off to jail uh, with their signs and their high spirits and their determination. 
I mean, it was just such a moving experience, both upsetting and moving at the same time. Um, it stayed with me. And so that's what I wanted to write about. I wanted kids today, young people today, to feel that kind, same kind of spirit and determination and, and just speak up and not allow, um, you know, kind of the all of the negativism of today to stop them, but rather to motivate them. So would you kind of say that growing up during that time period, you were truly on the forefront of racism and all of these topics that have maybe now been discussed more in the public, say, over the past three to four years? Yeah. So my dad, you know, integrated Major League Baseball, spent 10 years as in, in, as a Brooklyn Dodger um, major leaguer, uh, had a phenomenal baseball career. But when he retired... He had a job in corporate America with chock-full nuts, um, but he had a deal with them that he could travel whenever needed for the civil rights movement. And my dad was basically, you know, using his celebrity to raise funds for the movement. So initially it was just for end, end of LACP, and then he moved in, and Dr. King started asking him to uh, raise funds for the churches that had been bombed, the black churches that were bombed during that, that time period. Uh, and then he started raised money for Birmingham. So he was always on the forefront of the movement um, and used his celebrity to help, whether it was voter registration or getting uh, bail money for the marchers who had, you know, had to pay pay back the court systems. So um, he brought his family in and brought my brothers and I in, in 1963, basically said to us, you know, I've been out there doing my thing with the civil rights movement and coming back and telling you about it because it was very much a, to- a ongoing topic in our home at dinner time. Um, but I want us as, in, as a family to be involved in the movement and to, you know, he told us to find work that we loved and work towards that and keep family and God as a priority, but that we should have a family mission. So he really started us off on this mission with the civil rights movement, but it also led to a lifelong um, direction for me. So I've always been mission driven. I did find work that I love and I I continue to, to be passionate about the work that I do. You know, as a child of somebody who has made such positive change in the world, it would have been so easy for you to basically take his name, start a charity, and then go buy a yacht and never use your voice to make a change too. It's really incredible that you've managed to do so much and make so much change and create so many conversations. So I truly applaud you seriously for that. I want to talk about the program that you also started, which includes a national essay contest for students in grades four through nine. So that is really incredible. Mm -hmm. And it seems that you designed that to really empower students to face obstacles in their lives. Have you gone into schools and demonstrated this? Where have you really talked to these students the most? In schools. Um, So it's a 24, we're in our 24th year. And the program goes out as a full curriculum created um, in partnership with Scholastic and Major League Baseball and myself. And then um, we go out um, to schools to visit the the essay winners because the National Essay Contest, which is voluntary. Many schools do it as uh, an exercise for all like sixth graders or all eighth graders or whatever. Um, so we go out to the schools to visit the essay winners and do assemblies in in the schools. So that's a very important part of the program. 
Um, and that way we get to reach not only the essay winner, but, you know, the entire sixth grade or whatever the or the entire school in some cases. Um, so it's been phenomenal work. And then we also bring kids over to ballparks and they meet players and the grand prize winners are honored at the World Series and the or the All-Star Game. So this year uh, we'll be honoring um, the 2019 winner at the World Series, which I hope will be right here in Los Angeles. Oh my gosh, that is that is so cool! I would love to be there. That's so phenomenal that you're you're giving kids from all areas a voice because social media, yes. obviously, you, you probably didn't you didn't really grow up with social media. So my generation, yeah. you know, people under twenty five are right in the bulk of yeah. social media, and unfortunately, right. social cre- media creates so much so many good opportunities, but I think also uh, makes kids really insecure and, and stems depression and anxiety. So I'm curious from the kids that you have met and interacted with, is there a topic mm-hmm. that you think most are struggling with, regardless of where they're from, whether it's a city like Los Angeles or inner right. city Hartford? So there's always themes, uh, Alexis. So, you know, there's usually a theme. One of the themes is, is abuse. Um, kids in some way have, have experienced that. Um, we have kids that talk about their sexuality and as being, you know, the theme that's or the obstacle they're, they're struggling with at the moment. We certainly have had uh, emotional issues, uh, mental health issues, um, a lot of issues around their parents. We have kids to talk about um, language barriers. So there's, you know, each year there's, there's kind of themes that, that run through them. Um, and it's, it has given us over 24 years, a real glimpse into, glimpse into the, lives of young people. And, you know, it, it is amazing to me, the amount of depression and anxiety that's, that's, um, in the world today. I didn't really think of it in connection with social media, but you're, you're probably uh, right on there. What do you think has changed so much? Do you think that depression, anxiety is, is increased since you were growing up as a child? No, I think it, it may be that it's acknowledged more and talked about. I don't know that we didn't have it in, in my generation. I just think that now all of that is much more open and, you know, people are trying to find ways to curb it and, and deal with it. Where we, in my generation, we didn't talk about our obstacles or our barriers. You know, we kind of hid behind um, a mask of we're, we're okay. That's a really that's a really incredible point now that you say that, which reminds me, mm-hmm. I guess, and brings up the concept of social media as well, because social media has truly encouraged people to be more vocal about their personal mm-hmm. experiences too. On the polar opposite side of that, is there any topic where you when you were growing up that in in the world and in the government was talked about more and is now talked about less, less than it should be? Mm, interesting. Um Well, when I was growing up, we were, you know, because we were changing the laws, you know, with the civil rights movement, um, we certainly talked more openly about segregation and it's, mm-hmm. uh, and we saw people, you know, it was a, a, a real focused, uh, movement. So we're now the, um, the movements, multiple movements, you know, there's such diversity and so, so much, 
um, the tension is, is uh, you know, spreads out over many issues, you know, whether it's immigration or, or you know, sexuality or, um, you know, just the right to, you know, be who you are. All of that was kind of quiet when I was growing up and we had this singular focus on integration, breaking down segregation, racial equality. Of course. And now it's, you know, much broader. There's so many global issues. It's worldwide. We, we didn't have globalization back then. And we're much more insular and, you know, the North versus the South and integration in the North versus integration in the South. But it wasn't you know, this kind of global look at and how it's impacting all of us. We didn't have 24 hour news. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And now it's we like not bombarded. <laughs> now you have it on every in every direction and every every direction, every angle. You, you're also a, a mother. So are there ways that you would encourage or that you encourage the kids who you speak to to speak up in their community? Nowadays, I think that the news and everything that's going on in the White House, it's obviously so saturated and they're constantly throwing so many ideas and 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 ways that they expect young people to grow up and how they expect them to think and act when in reality it's not like that. So for young people who are listening and desperately want to get involved but don't know how to use their voice, maybe they're growing up in a small town or a town that has less opportunity than a larger city, what advice do you have for them? I think just that, Alexa, you know, you start where you are. Um, so get to know your community and the issues in, in your community and you start with what you, what you feel passionate about. It could be um, rescuing animals. You know, spend time in the ASPCA or whatever it's called in your community. Um, it might be climate. I mean, you're true. We have, you know, but every community has one of these or more of these issues that are, are impacting you direct, you know, somebody directly, you know, so that's, I'd say start right there. I, I decided, um, you know, after I, you know, my dad was not alive that I want, well, I wanted to be a nurse. I became a nurse midwife. So since I was a nurse midwife, my focus was, and this was in the seventies and the eighties, my focus was on uh, women's health. And I even narrowed it down tighter to, um, becoming a specialist in adolescent development. Um, so I was working with pregnant girls um, and, and trying to use the, the pregnancy and this change in their life as an opportunity and not see it as, you know, they have to continue school and they have to continue to grow as an individual as well as uh, prepare themselves for, for motherhood. So um, I think the more important thing is just to, not try to cover all of the issues that are out there in the world, but decide what's most important to you. It's really quite incredible that you had a 20-year career as a nurse, midwife, and an educator prior to joining mm -hmm. the MLB. I mean, you taught at Yale, Columbia, Howard, Georgetown. When you were speaking at all of those colleges, was there any common thread between the students? I mean, those are some very prestigious colleges, uh, but was mm -hmm. there anything that you were walking away every day thinking, I wish that these kids knew this? Hmm. And when I say kids, I mean college students, but that's, college a very, students. that's a very difficult time because like you said, there's a, a lot of pressure from parents to be successful and do well, but many kids end up doing the opposite if there's too much pressure from the parents. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, since I was um, 
focused primarily in graduate school. I had a, they, these were mostly adults, so it was really adult learning. And with adult learning versus, and it, it's true of college, you know, adults learn what they um, are passionate about, what they really want to study, and that's what they do best in. So my the students that came to me, I think the, the big issue, in addition to them learning how to birth babies and do GYN and, you know, understand um, um, sexual development and, you know, be able to talk openly about it. It was all, it, to me, the uh, side focus or the um, uh, writing, you know, because, you know, in graduate school, you have to write your thesis. Even in undergraduate school, you have to be able to write. So I was always working with, with young women primarily on their basic writing skills and, and how they do, how to do research and how to, um, you know, decide what research you want to focus on. So that was, and I actually started publishing myself when I was on faculty. So I I guess writing, being a writer was, um, a a side focus and, and it, really bothered me that there were so many people out there who were in college or in graduate school and they were they were not accomplished writers they're not strong writers and so I really focused on that what is it about writing that you think is so powerful because I agree I'm a writer and I think writing has taken me gotten me through so many difficult times but why Mm -hmm. why the heavy emphasis on writing because some people go to college and I feel like a lot of students that reach out to me nowadays are like I'm not learning anything they're learning X plus one equals 10 and they want to actually learn to be a writer, but they're not actually learning Mm -hmm. how to write and the basis of writing. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, you know, the basis of writing is reading. You have to read a lot of books. You have to read magazines. You have to, um, whether you're doing it online or, read, you know, read, read newspapers. And I'm just talking about one newspaper I'm talking about multiple newspapers and from from the reading you get um inspired if you're a real reader you get inspired to start writing stuff down um and you have to push yourself to to work hard at it it's 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 like any any job it's it's work writing is not easy um and but it is helpful if you are well versed on the world and um other people's opinions and you develop your own opinions and you, know, you, you read, if you're reading the paper, you might come up with a story that says, wow, I want to know more about this. And so when you do your research and you may want to write about it and share that news with other people. And that's the kind of the beauty of, of social media is that there are so many ways that you can share uh, contemporary issues with a larger uh, public. Um, so you know, you you doing this podcast, that's amazing because you are getting your voice out there, but you're also getting other voices um, to uh, to people. Certainly. Thank you for saying that. That means a lot. And I completely agree. As long as people are continuing to create change and, and use their voice, because many people think mm-hmm. if I'm only going to impact one person, it's not worth it. But you have to think the opposite way. One person is more mm-hmm. than, than zero that's people. Right. So you've written a, a ton of books. So far, how many overall have you written? Um, around 12. One I don't really talk about because it was a, a failed romance book. 
<laughs> well, well, I mean, 12 books and one wasn't a New York Times bestseller. I, I, I would never look down upon that. But I mean, somebody now would call you obviously a very accomplished writer and author speaker. Um, so is there is there a process of behind the scenes when you're writing these books that that people mm. might not be as aware of? Like, are there times when it is difficult to write the book? Or do you just sit down and knock it out in in three months? No, no, no. No, I actually do a great deal of research and I do um, on all of my books. Um, and I do the research on multiple levels. Uh, so I do first person, like we always talk about. And I do that sometimes through interviews. Uh, you know, sometimes it's face to face interviews or on tele- uh, telephone. Um, uh, through email, you know, combination of, of first person. I also do a lot of research um, through, since I, I write historical stuff so through, um, you know, newspapers going to specialty libraries and where I have access to, to newspapers that go go way back. Or, you know, so, so I, I, and I love the research process. Uh, it's It's usually where I, so that usually takes me, let's, let's take Child of a Dream. I mean, I started um, plotting this book in my head two years before I knew how, to, how I was going to tell the story. Hmm. And I started with, I want to talk to kids about, I've been talking to kids about their voice and, you know, throughout my cr- professional career. But now I want to tell it through the Children's Crusade in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. I want that to be the heart of the story. But I didn't know how I was going to tell the story. So I started off thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll tell it through the court records. But there were no court records. They never released the court records. The kids were, you know, a thousand kids were jailed during that crusade. And their court records are still sealed since, you know, all of these years later. And there's a reason for that. They don't want to know how they handled these cases. These kids were suspended from school for um, speaking up, for doing illegal assembly because the Alabama uh, system had shut down or the Birmingham system had shut down um, public assembly as a way to silence the mo- Dr. King and the movement um, during the time. So, that, you know, I, so I wasn't able to do it from that perspective. Um, I thought about, well, I'm writing for kids, so maybe I should do a picture book. Well, picture book you is too young of an age, and you can't really get into the, you know, what is freedom and what is um, racial injustice, you know, as in the as thoroughly as you can with the older kids. So I I turned that one down. And then my my editor, who was very supportive of the concept. You know, he read a memoir I did in 1997, an adult memoir, and he said, you know, you need to tell it through your own story. And and he was correct. But then even when you're telling your own story, you're looking back and you have to do your, your research, you, you know, from talking to friends who are there with you on the front lines with you of life, um, you know, and kind of just research what what um, what people were wearing in, in 1963, I mean, even clothing becomes an, an issue. So writing is fascinating. It does not, I don't do it fast. It usually takes me a year to actually do the writing. And I have, um, you know, I'd like to write in quiet space, but I like to edit in public space. Mm. Um, so I've always found um, there's always a restaurant involved in my, my um <laughs> 
in my editing. Um, I like to have voices around me when I'm um, editing and I actually edit on paper. You know, that may be a generational thing, I, but I can't edit. I, love I have that. to still see the, see the writing on paper. And I actually, I write in between, I double space all of my um, drafts so that I can write in between uh, when I'm editing. And so it's, you know, everybody has a process. I like to work during the day. Some people like to work at night. I've always worked uh, at the same time as I wrote. I, I raised my son while I was, you know, working on books. So I continue having a, a full life, a very normal life, in addition to have a, having a, a writing life. So I'm not, I've never been a, a writer who isolates myself from real life. So it's, I guess that's why I write about real life. Sometimes as a writer, it can be difficult as well to go back so far into your memory and, and kind of pull out certain times and memories to put them into the book. Have you ever had times where perhaps you've dealt with something that was really painful from your childhood that you've wanted to write about and struggled with putting that onto paper? My first memoir, and that's why it took so long for me to write it. I wrote about, um, I had an abusive for early marriage and... Um, I didn't even understand uh, domestic violence at that point. Um, it was not talked about, and uh, it was sort of a shameful thing, and you felt um, very badly about yourself. So I, I contained that pain um, inside of me until one day I got offered a, um, to interview for a position with a domestic violence organization. And I was like, I had to go to the library, literally, and look up, well, what is domestic violence? Mm-hmm. And then realized, well, that's what I went through in my early ma- in my early marriage. And because of that, I didn't want the job because I wasn't ready to even deal with my own past. Um, but it got me doing research. And then from research, I had legal pads and I started writing. And that's why I, I, I'm sure that's why I created the program with um, – Breaking Barriers in Sports and Life with Major League Baseball and Classic because I understood the process of writing it down. And as you're writing it down, you realize, oh my goodness, you know, I pulled myself out of that, you know? And I felt better about myself in the end after I'd written it down and saw that I had worked through a process. And now that I had to, now that I was writing it down, I could release it so that it was no, that pain was no longer in control of you know, my, my emotions uh, and how I relate it in other relationships, you know, how I, you know, kind of push people away because I, you know, didn't trust. Um, so it's writing it down is just um, a wonderful way of, of, can be a wonderful way of releasing um, past. I started a nonprofit a few years ago where we go into schools and educate young people about the effects of social media on mental health. And And one of the topics that was constantly told to me that I should bring up that I personally didn't have a personal experience with, but knew people who did was domestic violence. So your focus Mm -hmm. on that is incredibly important. Have you met a lot of young women and men who have struggled with domestic violence issues through your speaking? Yeah, but I've never focused on it specifically. Um, I, you know, once I released it and wrote about it, I, like, I didn't want it to be, a major topic of my life, but what I wanted it to be the major topic was, um, you know, finding inner strength and moving beyond obstacles. So I, I kept it broader than that, 
Um, but yes, it's a huge, I, I don't know any woman that has it experience experience some level of it you know um and that's you know part of my generation where, where we didn't have the self-confidence maybe you know that i see in young women today um but you know we're, with this me too movement we're seeing you know all these young people that had this have had the same experience in, in different you know Violence is violence, and whether it's sexual violence or physical violence, and you know, but it's basically coming to recognizing it, um, pulling away from it very quickly if it if it's you know kind of people show the signs of it, and you know, and having the strength to um, believe that you deserve better. Not to get too deep into the topic either, but are there any warning signs for young men and women who are listening to this podcast and are like, I'm curious what Sharon's experience was, if they can relate at all. Like, are there any main warning signs to know that you're in an unhealthy relationship and what would be the first step to get out of it and reach out for help? Well, I think the first step is, you know, someone is overly controlling and, and pulling you away from what you believe in, um, that's a, a, a very unhealthy sign. But I think the, the general sign is if you're not feeling good about yourself, you're feeling good about the other person, um, you don't need to be in the relationship. You, know, you have to nurture each other and be, and be with someone that's loving and supportive. And if you're not feeling that, if they're not supportive of your work, overly critical, um, you know, again, try to pull you away and tell you you're spending, you know, this is, I'm more important than, than what you're doing personally. It's, it can't be, you know, you want somebody that is, is also invested in their own work as well as, um, a loving relationship and a family. So you don't want someone that says you can't work and I'm not, you know, and in, in their behavior, I'm not saying they necessarily say that, but in their behavior, they're they're criticizing your work all the time. It's a, you know, there's a lot of ways you can kind of feel the unhealthiness, but it's just a matter of us recognizing it and doing something about it. So it's just like any other kind of injustice. You know, if you don't recognize your, you know, in a, a situation where there's no equality and. and mutual respect, whether it's your professional work or your personal relationships. But mostly it's like, how, how are you feeling? You know, are you feeling good about yourself? Are you Mm -hmm. feeling inspired? Do you you get up every day and want to get out there and make a contribution? Then, you know, if you're not, there's a reason why you're not. And if you are in a school and don't necessarily feel like your school has given you potentially the resources to reach out for the kind of help that many young people need, where would be your first place to turn sharing for somebody who's, who's struggling with not knowing where to turn and is dealing with domestic violence or mental health issues? Well, I try to find a safe person. Uh, and it's not necessarily um, a parent, um, but it's got to be, uh, and it, it's not necessarily your best friend because they are also, you know, going through whatever struggles. So I usually, um, 
you know, and this is now as an adult, when I was in my own personal struggle, I didn't tell anybody, you know, I, I, um, I, I told my parents through my behavior, you mm-hmm. know, my, my grades dropped. I didn't have interest in school anymore. Um, you know, so the ambition was gone. The, the plans, I was very goal oriented and very sort of self-directed and confident as a, as a young girl. And that was gone. You know, I was just focused on my boyfriend mm-hmm. and, you know, his family and, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. so I, you know, today, you know, or, or what I told my son when he was growing up, you know, uh, you know, you, you need, you need, um, someone you can trust that you can talk to. And then, you know, he found it within his coach, you know, he may have found it in a, um, you know, some people find it in the church, you know, if, if they're religious, uh, you know, so you have to, you have to know who you go to. So I kind of, recommend to young people to think now, you know, like if being before you have a crisis, you know, who would you talk to? Who can you trust and develop a trusting relationship with an older person? And right. My grandmother lived with us and I had a very trusting relationship with her. So to really be proactive then. A lot of, you have to be proactive, like you know, you have to, you know, we're, you're going to run into some struggle mm-hmm. and you need to know, well, you know, kind of who's going to, who do I talk to? It may be a career thing, you know, you know, who are your, your early mentors? Yeah. And we all need to have a, a mentor. And who's really in your corner, I guess. Who's in your corner. Yeah. So Sharon, you have had an incredible life so far. I am completely starstruck by having the chance to have you on this podcast, but what is kind of your end goal? I mean, you've done everything that anyone would ever dream of. So how do you constantly stay creative and where would you like to see your personal journey going in the next five to 10 years? Oh my goodness. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I am in that next transition. You know, I, I want to um, actually, at this point in my life, I want to work, let be let, less, um, want to drive myself less. I don't want to drive myself so hard. You know, and I have driven myself hard um, all these years. And I feel like in this next phase, you know, I want to travel more. I want to... Um, get healthier. I want to um, make sure that I'm, I mean, I love to swim. I want to do the things that I really love to do and less of what I have to do mm-hmm. and less of what people are, you know, putting the pressure on me to, um, to perform. Um, so I want to continue to write, but I don't want to, um, I'm, I'm not so anxious to get another contract anytime soon. I just want to write because I love to write. And if I, um, finish whatever book I finish next. I want to finish it and then you know say, okay, here's the book. So I guess it's you know um, I do feel like it's a time I want to focus a little bit on myself and my family and my partner and I just sort of enjoy that phase of my life. Where do you find time to just sit back and relax and take a break to not necessarily work? I just build it in. I mean, I think it's part of why I've lived either in the Caribbean or Florida for the last, you know, had a home in those places for the last 20 years because I, I love being outside in the warmth. I love to swim. Um, 
I do go to the gym and all of that gives me a, a balance and, and I have a partner who's supportive and, you know, we like to spend time together and I have, uh, I have a dog, you know, <laughs> so I have my family, my partner, my dog. So I and guess I you're relatively no <laughs> normal, quote unquote, normal in, in terms of people who are, you know, living a normal life and, and not, but Sharon, you were a blast to talk to. Where can everyone find more about you, the foundation? And if, if you have any social media, please let us know where we can follow you. Yeah, so start with, my, for me, um, my website is Sharon Robinson, Inc., I-N-K, dot com. And that kind of leads you to um, my work with the Jackie Robinson Foundation, Major League Baseball, my writing, um, and, you know, I have an Instagram account. And so all of that is listed on my my website. But thanks, thanks, Alexa. You were, yeah, I, I had such fun with you, I you ask me questions I don't normally get asked. Oh my you gosh! Think of things that uh, I'm honored. So oh, it's, well, that's so cool. No, for it's, me. It's, it was fresh. Yeah, oh. no, it was very fresh and. Thoughtful. Oh my gosh! Uh, so that's good luck with so your work. Cool. Thank you so Keep much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for for being on this episode. And everyone, I will link below to more about the the foundation that she runs. So if any of you are looking for an inspiration like Sharon, she is the perfect, perfect person to look up to. So Sharon, thank you for continuing to inspire and and share your story. Uh, For those of you who want to learn more about This Is Life Unfiltered, make sure to head to our Instagram page, which is at T-I-L-U podcast. And you can follow my personal Instagram page at at Alexa underscore Curtis. And I'll see you guys back next week for a new episode of This Is Life Unfiltered. Mm -hmm.